of look at everybody here. Okay. Hi, my name is Maggie Woods, and I've been a follower of Jesus for 34 years. And I've also walked through a 13-year addiction to opiates that just about cost me everything. What if I told you that I was a married mother of two, a Christian leader in ministry, and a full-blown drug addict? My addiction went from mildly annoying to life-wrecking destruction um, to me and everyone who loved me, specifically my immediate family, my husband and my two daughters. There's no maintaining an addiction. An addiction escalates. It grows. Before my turnaround would begin to happen, I would acquire 18 arrests in three different counties, in two different states, in four different jails. And to be honest, it could have been way worse. Those are the ones where they caught me. My childhood wasn't perfect, but it wasn't terrible either. I knew my parents loved me, and now that I'm older and know them better, I think they did the best that they could, um, considering the tools that they had. Um, neither of them had idyllic childhoods. Addiction does run in my family, um, but so does resilience. Like I said, I've known Jesus for 34 years. I came to Christ as a 17-year-old at a Bible study, and I felt called to ministry. I felt called to, to preach and to teach um, and to spread the gospel. I didn't really know what or how. Um, that was just what I felt like the Lord was showing me as a, as a teenage girl. Um, so I came from Ohio and I went to Lee College. That's what it was at the time. It wasn't university yet. Um, and while I was at Lee trying to become what I thought God wanted me to become, my parents split up. Um, my parents divorced and they sold my home in Ohio. So I was like, I guess I live here now. Um, and during around that same time, I met my husband-to-be, Mark. And it was like God was kind of orchestrating things for me. One door was closing, another was opening. I wasn't going to go back to Ohio anyway because I was in love with that guy. And, you know, my parents splitting up just kind of confirmed everything. Um, so Mark and I got married in 1994, and we had our first baby, this beautiful young woman right here, in 1995. Um, and we struggled financially. We were, we were young and kind of goofy, and we didn't know what we were doing. Um, you know, and we didn't have much money, and we didn't make really good spending choices. And, um, you know, we struggled, and we wrestled with that. And we didn't really know how to grow up and be adults, really. Even at 24 and 25, we were still getting our sea legs. But we didn't know we wanted to be involved in a church, and we wanted to be planted somewhere, and we wanted to raise our daughter in church. Um, so we planted ourselves right here in Church of the Harvest, and um, Hillary and my other daughter, Madeline, grew up here in this church, and I have very beautiful memories of Hillary specifically um, when she was little, just running all over this church during worship and, you know, loving Jesus and knowing about the things of God from, a, from, from being a baby. Madeline would come up here and lay on the altar when I would speak, and we had a ministry here called Young Women's Selah that I was over, and, you know, they were always here, and Courtney would babysit, so... I mean, it's just what we did. It's what we did. So, and, you know, we did that, and we were kind of growing up. Um, in 1998, 
I got pregnant again, and it was uh, what we thought was a little boy. And I had a lot of pain and some problems, and I went to the doctor because I was bleeding, and the doctor said, well, I've got you know, some bad news. It looks like you're having a miscarriage. And I was just devastated. And they said, but um, we're just going to send you home with some medicine. Okay, we're going to give you some medicine that's going to make you cramp. It's going to make you pass the pregnancy, is what they called it. And um, we're going to give you some pain pills to go along with it. So I went home, and I took the medicine, and, and I didn't pass the baby. And I had a lot of pain. And, you know, I was bleeding and bleeding and bleeding. And this went on for about two weeks. And that's a long time to wait for your baby to pass. Um, emotionally and physically, it was very painful. Um, I eventually had to have a surgery and, uh, you know, that ridded me of the baby without being too graphic. Um, and it was just devastating to me. And at that time, I was really in an isolated place. My parents were kind of going through their drama. And it was just kind of me. And Mark worked a lot. So I was kind of in an isolated place. So they sent me home with a giant bottle of painkillers. And I remember coming home. I had Hillary. She was three. And um, my husband was back to work because we had bills to pay, like I said, and we'd made some goofball decisions regarding our spending. So he was kind of, you know, nailed down to needing to make money. And it was just me, a three-year-old, and a giant bottle of addictive painkillers. And I've just suffered this loss. And I have a specific memory of um, coming out onto my deck right when I got home. And I came out and I had taken two of those pills and I sat down and just at that moment, the sun kind of came out and hit me. About the same time the pills hit me. And I felt great. And I felt happy and warm. And I think it was at that moment something switched in my brain. Something began to happen in my mind. I crossed a threshold there. And I think that was the beginning of my addiction. And at that point, it was manageable. I could kind of toy with it. I could kind of pick it up and leave it. You know, and that's kind of how addiction works. That's, it kind of gives you the false impression that you've got control over it. And I would, you know, take a couple here, leave it a day, take a couple there, leave it two days, take a bunch one day, leave it another week. I kind of toyed with it up until 2000 when my youngest daughter, Madeline, my 20-year-old, um, was born. And at that point, things began to escalate. After I delivered her, I began to have a lot of pain. I had a, a lot of female problems. Um, it turned out I had endometriosis and adenomyosis and fibroid tumors. My menstrual cycles could last up to three weeks, and they were excruciating. Um, so they began to kind of send me around to doctors to try to find out what's going on. Let's do this surgery. Let's do that surgery. And in the meantime, we're going to give you some pain medication, and that's going to help you. And, of course, I was like, okay, that sounds like a great plan to me. Because I liked it. I liked the pain pills. Um, I think that's part of being in an addict, is you like what the drugs do to you. They make you feel good. Um, so I was going to these surgeries and these specialists and doctor to doctor, and I was developing this drug addiction. And it was getting more and more, and I was getting to the place where 
I couldn't lay them down. I couldn't take that day off anymore. And I was taking more and more. Finally, it got to the point where the doctors were saying, there's really not anything else we can do for you. You know, we've tried ablation surgery. We've tried hormones. We've tried, uh, you know, going in there and cleaning things out. We've, you know, we've tried multiple things. What we're going to do for you now is we're going to refer you to pain management. It's about to get deep in the pain management. Back then, it was before America really realized that we were having an opiate crisis. Okay, this was multiple years ago. And in pain management clinics, what happens is you go in and they say, what we're going to do now is we're going to put you on a regimen. And it's going to be a very strong regimen. And they, they prescribe you much more powerful uh, preparations than what regular doctors prescribed. And they prescribed things back then that have been banned now. Um, life and pain management is a whole different world. Um, and I loved it. They said, what we want you to do is, you know, there's multiple different types of medicines they give you. They give you things that are time-released, and then they give you other things for breakthrough pain, if you're familiar with it at all. And they said, what we need you to do is stay ahead of the pain. So we want you to take these pills before you even feel any pain. And I was like, I like where you're going with this. Sign me up. I'm the girl for the job. Um, so I ran with it. I ran with it. I didn't have a problem staying ahead of the pain. I medicated every negative emotion, every ache, every hangnail, every bad hair day, every stressor, every time my bank account got low, every time I was lonely or hungry or tired or frustrated or bored. There wasn't a problem in life I couldn't fix with, with a painkiller. There wasn't a bad day I couldn't turn around with a pill. And there wasn't a good day I couldn't make even better with a pill. And that's how I thought. I used to tell myself that these were my little life enhancers. I started using more and more and more. And I was in pain management, gosh, probably a good six or seven years. It was probably 2008, 2009-ish. Um, I had escalated my use so much that in between pain management visits, I was running out. And back then, I don't know how they do it now, um, but back then you had to sign a contract with your pain management doctor that you wouldn't get pain med medicine anywhere else. And this was before they had prescription monitoring. So it was a free-for-all. It was the Wild West. And I was running out in between my visits. And anybody that knows anything about addiction knows you're not going to go without. And I certainly was not going to go without. I wasn't going to wait. So I began to do what's called doctor shopping. And I would go to ERs or I would go to walking clinics or I would try to get into other pain management doctors because we live real close to a lot of different states. Um, and by then, by that point, I was acclimated to using probably 50 to sometimes 20 to even sometimes 30 high-powered painkillers every day. Every day. Just to feel normal. 
just to not be sick. Um, and I got caught. And it wasn't by the law. It was by the Prescription Drug Monitoring Database. Once that law passed, pain management doctors in particular were required to run your pharmacy report. And I knew it was, it was, it was about to get crazy, and I had hoped for the best. Um, I remember the day that my doctor confronted me, um, and he, he went through and confronted a lot of us because there were a lot of people in that same predicament. And when he ran those pharmacy reports, he had to discharge us. And it was immediate. And you go from 15 to 30, just to feel normal, to nothing. And they have to report to every doctor that you've been to. That was the way the war on drugs was operating. Um, and I was not a fan. And I was scared. And I was cut off with absolutely nothing. Um, I was active. It was an active addiction, uh, major addiction, majorly dependent on these high-powered opiates, and I was not going to take no for an answer. I don't know if you guys remember, probably not, because this is for older people will know. Do you remember Nancy Reagan, her war on drugs was just say no? That is hilarious, because, like, if you had the ability to say no, we, I was not going to just say no. I was not going to accept no as an answer. No was not an option for me. No is not an option for a person in active addiction. Um, so I began to travel and, and go to emergency rooms and go to different doctors in different places. And I started to use, and they started to recognize you is the problem. There's lots of challenges with drug addiction, and this is some of them. Um, they would recognize you. Weren't you here last week? Weren't you, you know, I saw you in a different clinic because some of these doctors travel around, I found out, the hard way. When you walk in, it's the same guy from last week. You know, that's tough. Um, so that you start getting turned down. So I began to travel more and more and more, going from place to place to place. And um, I was all over the place. And typically, um, especially when this drug monitoring database came out, they could only give you like a day supply because of the law, because they didn't want to get in trouble, because doctors all over the place were getting busted for overprescribing, for, you know, contributing to the opiate crisis that was rising up. Um, so you would drive and travel, or I would, and go to these places and spend hours away to get 10. But the problem was I needed a 15 to 20 to cope and to function and to not be sick. Um, I was gone from my husband and my children, more and more and more long days and long nights traveling, and it was a huge hassle to me, is how I thought. I thought there's got to be a more efficient way, just, I mean, this thinking blows my mind, a more efficient way to supply myself with the drugs that I need to function. There's got to be a more efficient way. And I knew I had to think of it. And I would just rack my brain trying to figure out how to do it. And I couldn't get another pain management doctor to take me because I had been blacklisted. So one day, I think I was, I was somewhere, I was at some office somewhere waiting, trying to be seen, trying to 
be seen for some feigned condition that I was going to tell this doctor I had so I could get some more pain pills. And I heard a doctor on the phone, and she was calling in a prescription. And I happened to be just in earshot. And I heard her do it, and she hung up, and I was like, I could do that. I think I could do that. And I was like, I, she, you know, I think I can em, emulate her voice. I think I can sound educated. I think I can speak in a way that someone would believe me. That's what I'm called to do. So I could take that gifting and abuse it and twist it and use it for my own harm. So that's what I did. Um, and at first, it was very easy. And it worked until it didn't. And here's a tip for you. I don't recommend doing that. Things were continuing to escalate, and, and it was getting worse, and I was having job loss and money problems. I was lying. I was stealing. Uh, my relationships were getting broken. It's like I said, it works out great until it doesn't. When it doesn't work, it's really, really bad. Not only did I not get the pills I thought I had to have, but then I had added to that the legal consequences when I found myself a part of the legal criminal system. In 2009, um, I got caught. It was actually, I can tell you when and where. It was at a Walgreens by Northgate Mall. And I had had a rather desperate day that day, I can remember. I think I had been shut down at one place. Like, it wasn't going to happen there, so I went to a second place. And I didn't feel good about it, but I was sick. I was starting to become very ill, so I was desperate. Um, and I went into this Walgreens, and my heart was racing. I wasn't looking good, a little sweaty, a little nervous. I was losing my facade that was part of what I was doing, part of this fraud. And... Um, I remember when I was giving the girl, the pharmacy tech, my information, I noticed her hands were shaking. And I was like, Maggie, you need to get out of here. But I didn't. So I was like, she's on to me. But I was so desperate, I stayed. And it wasn't long. I was kind of meandering around the store waiting for them to call this fake name I'd given them. And I saw undercover cops come in. And they're really obvious, you know. Um, it's really obvious. And I was like, oh, and I still stayed. Why I didn't leave, I don't know. Desperation, foolishness, you get messy. Um, and I got picked up that day, put in handcuffs, hauled out in front of the store. And all I could think about was, when can I get back out here to do this again. That was the first of 18 arrests that started happening. Not only was I in bondage to opiates, I was now in bondage to a system that would continually give me enough rope to hang myself with. 
and to put me a little bit deeper in the system. And they did that over and over and over again. My drug use only escalated. Turns out, jail doesn't fix addiction. Um, punishment and consequences only made me want to use more. I hadn't made the connection in my brain yet about consequences and drug use. I wasn't putting that together yet. I stopped paying my bills altogether, and I can remember telling my little girls when uh, our power would get turned off, and Hillary can remember, we're going to play camping. We're going to light candles, and it's going to be a lot of fun, and we're going to play camping this weekend because I had spent all of our money trying to get pills. Eventually, I made us homeless. I did that a few times. Um, we'd move into place after place and be kicked out again in, in, in no time. I had made, because of my drug use, our home a place of lack, turmoil, and uncertainty. Do you ever wish you could go back in time and just punch yourself in the face? I felt like that today when I was going over these things. I remember one day we had gotten thrown out again, and it was just routine. It was routine. It always happened. And I picked up Madeline from school, and I had tons of stuff all packed in the car because anybody that's been thrown out, how it works is a sheriff comes to your house, and you have 15 minutes to get out. And I had gone to pick up Madeline from school, and I had the car all packed up to the roof, and she just walked up casually and saw it, and she got in the car and said, we got kicked out again, didn't we? And just looked straight ahead. And there was no spin I could put on that. There was no game I could make that. We lived in various hotels, and the girls pretty much stopped going to school. Truancy court and uh, CPS came for us. My little girls had to be interviewed by CPS, and they had to go to truancy court. And my husband would take the rap for it because I was in no condition to appear. And Mark went to jail multiple times for truancy, and it was never his fault. It was always mine. I continued to get arrested over and over and over again, and I never went to any of my court dates. Again, I don't recommend that. The courts don't like that. Yeah, failure to appear, whoo, they will, they will snap you up for that one. I kept telling myself I was going to fix it all, that just as soon as I could get myself a good supply. It wasn't these mistakes I was making. It was that nobody would give me a good supply of pain pills so that I could function. I was going to fix everything. And I would lay in bed at night sometimes, and I would cry. Those moments of clarity that you have, when you, when you finally you get those moments, you're like, something could really be wrong here. I would cry, and I would beg God to help me. And I would tell God, I'd be like, I know it's just a matter of time before you're going to come for me. You're going to come for me. And I, you're going to help me through this. And I talked to the Lord the entire time through my addiction. I maintained my relationship with Jesus, and I know that goes against a lot of people's theology, but I don't care because I lived it. He never once left me in that, and I would say it's a matter of time before you come for me. I know it's a matter of time, and I would cry myself to sleep, and then I'd get up and act the same way the next day. Um, 
By the time it was finally dawning on me that I was in real trouble, I felt completely trapped on every side. And I could see no way out. I was so tired. I was so exhausted. Chasing a drug addiction is, the, is more than a full-time job. It's like having 10 full-time jobs. There is nothing else. I didn't eat. I didn't sleep. I wasn't there for my family. I didn't do anything but chase my drug of choice. All the time. Nothing mattered. My babies were tired. My husband was tired. Mark would just look at me. He'd bail me out from jail, and he would just look at me. And I don't know how you put up with it. I really don't. He would just look at me. He'd be like, you can't, you can't do this. You can't do this. And I remember Madeline, my little one, she had little dark circles under her eyes because nobody was there to take care of them. They were tired. We were all tired and worn out. And I couldn't figure out what to do about any of it. I was at a new level of misery. I was in financial trouble. I was in legal trouble. trouble. My family was homeless. I was a terrible wife. I was a horrible mother. And I started realizing also, in addition to all of this, that this whole thing was designed to kill me. Not only was it going to wreck my family and hurt everybody and cause so much devastation on every side, that at the end of this, I was going to die. And there wasn't anything I could do about it. I can remember driving in my car. It was a really dark night. I was out chasing pills, and it dawned on me, this is how I'm going to die. Like, I'm really going to die doing this. People don't know how they're going to die, but I do. And I can't do anything about it. I'll never forget that feeling. I was powerless over my addiction. Powerless. You, some of you know I'm hitting the 12 steps, but you know them. It was December 2011, and we had just moved to yet another house. And I was frantically trying to get Christmas together for my girls. And I think it's funny, um, those of us that have been in addiction, we try to do it both. Like, I'm, I'm still hopelessly, powerlessly addicted to my drug of choice, but I'm still going to do Christmas right for my babies. Like, we think we're going to do both. We kind of, that's just the way our thinking is. And I was failing at trying to get Christmas together in my dysfunctional state. I was out as usual on a pill run. That's going to help Christmas, right? Um, it was about 2 o'clock in the morning, and I was in a Walmart parking lot. It was... Uh, the, re the old Walmart here in Cleveland. We still lived in Cleveland then. And I was nodding in and out. Like I said, I hadn't been eating. I hadn't been sleeping. I looked horrible. When I look back at myself, I'm like, holy ghost woman. Why did you not see it? Do you know what I mean? Like, I am a high-maintenance girl. What was I doing? Do you know what I mean? Like, I wasn't bathing. I looked nuts. You know what I mean? Like, drugs don't make you pretty. That's the truth. I mean, we need t-shirts that say that. It's true, because you do not take care of yourself. You abuse yourself, you don't eat right, you don't sleep right, and drugs are poison. That's how it works. And I was in a Walmart parking lot nodding in and out, and I could tangibly, y'all, tangibly feel death around me, like a coldness. 
Do you ever like walk into a room and get into a cold pocket? It was like that in my car, suddenly. And I was scared. And I sat that there in, in my car, and I tried to think of one person who used drugs and who, and this is what I said, who got to keep using, because I wanted to figure out some way that I was going to still get to use drugs and it work out for them. Let me just think of one person. And I couldn't think of anybody. I couldn't think of one because it doesn't work out for anybody. It doesn't matter how rich they are. It doesn't matter how poor they are. It doesn't matter who their daddy is. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't work out for anybody. 100% failure rate, y'all. And it wasn't going to work out for me either. I just sat there and cried about it. During this most recent move that we had had, um, and I hate pastor's not here, but we can tell him. Pastor and a group of men, Mark was in jail for truancy. Pastor and a group of men had, it was, uh, he had a men's rehab at that time. And he would get those guys to go out and help people and do work. And he, he knew. I wouldn't tell any. you know, I wouldn't admit to anything. You know how that is. You deny it. Like your house is on fire behind you, and you act like it's fine. Don't worry. It's just a small fire. Nothing to worry about. And Pastor would just let it go. And I joke, he was just, he's, he's very subtle, and he's very cool, and he's very consistent. You know, and that's the recipe for my demise, apparently, because he got me. Um, he and some guys from the men's rehab came and helped us move all the stuff um, into a storage unit. And he was so sweet that day. He bought me and Madeline, and he bought us Denny's. We got pancakes, and we had a good time. And um, he gave me a CD that day. It was called America the Addicted. It was a sermon that he had preached. And I was like, yeah, I'll listen to it, whatever. You know, and we just, it was real sweet, and I was relieved that they'd come to help me. It was actually just a really good day, and I hadn't had a good day in a long time. And it was, it was fun. And we got something done. I hadn't done either of those things in a long time. Accomplished a goal and had fun. That was a great day. Anyway, he gave me this CD, and that night I had it in my car, and I happened to see it. That night where I was feeling really low and really fuzzy, and things were starting to change. And I believe I was very near death. So I put that CD in. And there's a part in the CD. It's all about people that are addicted and how America has a drug problem. And it's based on um, Hosea and Gomer. It's based on uh, that story. And it's a great story. You should read it. But there's a prayer in that story and in that CD that you can pray. It's the Hedge of Thorns. And it's based on um, Hosea 2.6. And I'll read it to you real quick. I will, back, I will block her way with thorn bushes and build a wall that she can't get through. It's a way, and it's a prayer you can pray for somebody that's repeating bad behaviors or somebody that's in addiction or somebody that needs a wake-up call or somebody that needs salvation from themselves. And that's what an active person in active addiction needs is you need saved from yourself. You don't have the ability to say no so God can help you say no 
with a big old hedge of thorns. And I heard that prayer, and he said, you can pray this over your loved ones. And I was listening to that, and I said, I'm just going to pray that over myself. And I said, I pray this hedge of thorns over myself. And I was like, did it take? <laughs> I sat there a minute. I was waiting for the magic to happen. And then I didn't feel anything. I still felt really sick and crazy and exhausted. And then a little bit later in the CD, he said, after you pray this prayer. And I was like, okay, expect things to happen. And I was like, okay, sounds good. And I was, I'm going to turn it off. He said, there may be an arrest. And I was like, oh, gosh, what have I done now? And I was just like, whatever, it doesn't matter. I turned it off and went about my way. A couple days later, December 22nd, 2011, everyone was so hopeful about our new house. My little girls were full of faith and hopeful about Christmas. No matter what I did, no matter how I failed those babies, they adored me. They adored me. They loved me. I was their mama. They thought I could do no wrong. They believed, they believed me every time I fed them another line of bull crap. They believed it. They believed this house was going to be the good one. This Christmas, things were going to get better. They believed it every time. And that night, we were out, and we were trying to get Christmas together. We were down to one vehicle because the drug task force had seized all our other ones because of me. Don't commit crimes in cars you don't want to lose. That's another tip for living for you guys. We were out, and they were bouncing off the walls, and they were happy, and they were loving, and I didn't deserve any of that. We were down to this one vehicle. We were going to go pick up Mark from work, and he was uh, running this Aubrey's here in Cleveland. We were at Walmart. Um, we stopped at Walmart, and then we were headed out the parking lot that was literally down the street. I mean, is that not even half a mile, a quarter of a mile, a minuscule amount of distance between Walmart and Aubrey's Cleveland. We headed out the parking lot, and I thought, what's the worst that can happen? What's the best that could happen? I want to be cautious here not to over-spiritualize addiction. Addiction is so complex. It's made up of brain, biology, predisposition, and choices. However, I would be remiss to under-spiritualize it because active addiction, it, it isn't a sin or a spiritual condition, but it is spiritually devastating. It will put you into a spiritual bankruptcy that will gut you. I am convinced that we need the help of a loving and living God to escape addiction. God can help us do the things we cannot do, and he can open the way of escape. And that night, in that minuscule little distance between Walmart and Aubrey's Cleveland, he did that very thing for me. December 20th, 2011, Jesus came for me. That prayer I prayed in that car that CD that pastor gave me and that prayer for the hedge of thorns and me calling out to Jesus to come for me. It all came in just the blink of an eye. At 2 a.m., I came driving out of a Walmart parking lot with my two little girls in the car with me, 
hopelessly drug addicted, no driver's license, multiple outstanding warrants for me in multiple counties, and I drove nonchalantly out of a Walmart with my lights off. And suddenly, blue lights appear. And a cop happened to be right there. It was about the best, worst Christmas my family had ever had. I was arrested in front of my husband's business, in front of my two little girls, and carted off away for Christmas. That was the beginning of a long and painful journey for me. I've heard stories of uh, recovery where people get up and say they were instantly set free and healed and had no withdrawals and all their charges were dropped. It did not happen like that for me at all. I got more charges when different jurisdictions figured out who and where I was because there were pictures of me. I was in full-blown opiate withdrawal and at the beginning of a court and jail tour. It was not glamorous. It was not glorious. I was locked away from my devastated family, and now I had managed to ruin Christmas. One of my girls asked me on the jail phone when Christmas came and it wasn't good. Did Santa not get our new address? Why isn't God helping us, Mommy? I wanted to die. I was so sick. I wanted to live too, but I just didn't want to live like this anymore. I remember crying and weeping and vomiting and sweating and shaking in a cold jail cell. And I remember we were moving around cells, and I was carrying my mat. It was in Bradley County Jail. And I was carrying my mat, and they were putting me into one of the corner isolations in um, HPOD. And I was walking to it, and I remember thinking, okay, okay, Lord, let's just do this. Let's just do this. And I walked thinking, let's just do this. And that was nine years three months and two days today that I've been clean from opiates. The first part wasn't glamorous, I promise. But I'm clean, and I've been clean. I ended up in drug court, and I got the treatment that I so desperately needed. Slowly but surely, life got better. It took time. It took work. It took a while for things to get really bad, so it took time for things to get better. I would love to say everything's been perfect since I got clean, but that would be a lie. I had legal hoops to, to jump through, so many. I had so many court dates to go through. I had fines to, to pay. I had community service to do. Um, I had probation officers. I had a bunch of probation officers because I was in trouble in a few different places, a couple different states. So I had to report and report and report and drug test and drug test and follicle test and pick up trash and clean public parks. Like, it was a lot. It was a whole lot. And I had to go before judges um, and go to counseling. I had to learn to work and to take care of myself. I had, my family had to learn to trust me again. We went through a long period, I remember, early on, when I'd say, okay, I'm going to go to Walmart, I'm going to go to Walmart, 
and I will call you, I will text you when I get there. Do you remember? And I'm like, I'm at Walmart now, I'm going in. I'd be like, I'm back in my car, I'm coming back home. Just because I used to not do that. I'd say I was going to Walmart and not be back for two days. It took time for my family to trust me. And I had to learn to work. And I had, we had to all learn together. My family and I had to learn to work together in our recovery. Because an addiction turns into a big family problem. And addiction uh, wrecks everybody. So recovery, likewise, is a big family event. We all learn to recover. We all learn to work together and watch for things and speak honestly and confront things and put in boundaries, things that maybe we weren't comfortable doing before. There had still been pain to heal. There have been losses to recover, but there's also been losses to let go. I think sometimes we can glamorize recovery and say, oh, you're going to recover everything you've lost. No, you're not. There are, there are losses in this game. Six years ago, in my own recovery, or six years into my own recovery, rather, my younger brother, also a person who struggled with opiate addiction, um, overdosed and died, waiting to go back to rehab the very next morning. And it was devastating. And I'm not going to recover him. That's a loss. It hurt so much, not only because he was my little brother and I loved him, but because I knew from my own life that it didn't have to be that way. He didn't want to die. He just wanted to feel better. On January 19, 2017, my little brother died alone in a ratty hotel room. Um, he overdosed on fentanyl and heroin. He was 41. And I won't let anybody forget him, and I'm not going to, and it's not, it's not something pretty to talk about. But I made a promise to him and to the Lord that I would make all this count for something. And that's what I try to do with my recovered life now. And I tell his story. There's a, a serenity prayer that I'm sure you all know. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to, the know, to know the difference. I spent 13 years becoming the worst version of myself. I was unrecognizable to myself. My life was beyond unmanageable. I had hurt my children, my parents, my siblings. I felt there was no way out and no way ever to fix my life. But I was wrong. I fell in love with the recovery life. Recovery life takes the I would if I could and makes it the can and I am. Please hear that. Those things that you think you can't do, you can do them. You absolutely can. I am what a miracle looks like. If I can do it, Anybody can. I was as good as dead, y'all. And here I am. Here I am. I do daily now the things I could not do. I'm a great wife. I'm a good mommy. I'm a present sister and daughter. I've worked at the same job for nearly eight years, and I'm pretty darn good at it. I'm serious. I thought I could not live my life without pills. But I can, and I am. I can and I am, and I have been clean nine years, three months, and two days. I can't believe it. I get to come to places like this and talk to people like you and tell my story. That's not even my favorite part. The small things in life are my favorite part. 
that part in the morning when you get to open up your eyes and the first thing you feel isn't fear and terror because you're without what you think you've got to have. I get to open my eyes and just open my eyes. And I have this thing I do with the Lord that I always say, this is my favorite part. This is my favorite part. It's like I'll be taking a shower just chilling. I'll say, God, this is my favorite part. It's my favorite part. I'm sitting on my couch holding my dog, and I'll say, God, this is my favorite part. This is my favorite part. I get to go on dates with my husband, and when we're going places and going to dinner and being together, and I'll say, God, this is my favorite part. Being with my girls and laughing and playing and them saying, Mama, we forgive you. We're so proud of you. God, this is my favorite part. Going to lunch with my sister, it's my favorite part. Those things that I couldn't do because an addiction dictated every stinking thing I did, I get to treasure now because those little things are big things and they're my favorite part. And finally, I want to give gratitude to God publicly for granting me a secret prayer that I prayed to him in some jail cell when I was locked away for my loved ones. I prayed that he wouldn't let my parents die before they could see me be okay. I said, God, because I hadn't seen them, I hadn't talked to them, I avoided them. I said, please, please don't let them die before I can get out and be okay and let them see that I'm okay. And my little dad got put into hospice on the third week of February, and I got to go. And he's not little, he's 6'4". Retired police sergeant, tough, tough guy, who all through my recovery would say, this too will pass. This too will pass. Walk in there like you own the place, darling. Learn from your mistakes. This too will pass. And I got to go in there and be with him. And on February 27th, my dad went to Jesus. But I am so thankful that he got to know that I was good that I, he got to see me be okay. And he told me, there in hospice, he said, you've made a, quite a comeback, haven't you, darling? And I said, yes, sir. Yes, sir, I have. And that made me happy. I want to encourage you, wherever you are in your journey, don't you dare give up. Fall in love with the recovery life. Recovery is possible. If I can do it, anybody can. I am worth it and you are worth it. Make your comeback too.